You're listening to Finance, Barry Preston. We certainly are, and uh, we're very pleased today to have one of our regular guests, Jonathan Payne, a local and international keynote speaker, known for his contrarian views on world economics, finance, and events, and the widely and the publisher of the widely read investment uh, letter, The Payne Report. And on this program in December 2005, he predicted the GFC, the global financial crisis. Jonathan, I hope you don't have any other bad predictions out there. Uh, no, not too many at the moment, Barry. <laughs> Fair enough. Very quickly, how many large countries are in a technical recession that we know of at the moment? Any Well, at the m- moment, uh, both uh, Spain and the United Kingdom both unfortunately have had two consecutive negative quarters of GDP, gross domestic product, uh, which classifies as the technical uh, definition of a recession. So just uh, Spain and and the UK at the moment. One would have thought more. Now, Europe, it's still in the news and not getting any better. And I believe that there are some uh, countries facing new elections. I wonder, can this help? Because one sees, reads that the masses are becoming a little bit restless. Well, certainly uh, that's one of the big stories in Europe at, at this moment in time. In fact, we have seen more governments fall in Europe this year and last than we saw throughout the Arab Spring uh, with the various revolutions across North Africa and the Middle East. Uh, So that kind of stole the headlines. But in actual fact, we've seen more political change and more governments fall uh, in Europe than we did uh, throughout the Arab Spring. And obviously, we uh, are in the middle of a presidential uh, election in, in France, with Hollande, the socialist candidate, looking likely to secure um, the presidential office uh, in, 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 in the next week when they have the second round of elections, and we've got elections uh, in, in Greece as well. That's, that's an important one. But yes, a, a lot of political change uh, right across Europe, in particular southern Europe. And in the Payne report, you said Spain is experiencing a very hard landing with its economy, unemployment at 23.6%, with youth unemployment at 50%. It created, and by the way, reading in that report, it said it created uh, half of all the new jobs in the European Union over five years to 2005, and most of those were in the construction industry. This seems to be a common fault, the construction industry. Well, that's right. I mean, uh, Spain, uh, obviously, and I've said it many times in my recent speeches, the pain in Spain falls mainly upon the housing pain, with apologies to George <laughs> Bernard Shaw. But what we saw in Spain was uh, of historic and epic proportions. Uh, you've uh, correctly quoted all the various statistics. I mean, the most tragic one of all, of course, is that youth unemployment rate in excess of 50%. Uh, I cannot recall in modern times a so-called developed country with an unemployment rate uh, where people defined as uses between 16 and 25, uh, over 50% being out of work. So it's really of epic and, 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 and tragic proportions, and much of it driven by the collapse in the construction industry. Uh, also, we're seeing a similar phenomenon in Ireland. Both Spain and Ireland actually share a lot in common. They're both uh, uh, engaged in, in a kind of orgy of real estate speculation, and the banks were willing and shameful and predatory lenders to the construction industry, and the banks have fallen over in Ireland, as indeed has the, uh, the, the housing market. The echo of a building boom sounds like shades of the Japanese fiasco many years ago when their economy went pear-shaped, and it's still pear-shaped. Well, that's right. I mean, the build-up uh, 
saw the Japanese uh, bubble was largely through the 80s, and we saw real estate prices there rise exponentially, arguably the greatest uh, real estate valuation bubble in the history of humanity. Just to give you one anecdote, which I think serves to illuminate the insanity that prevailed in Japan, in 1990, the area of land occupied by the Emperor's Palace in Tokyo, an area of land of about 225 acres, I've actually run around it, uh, was worth more than all of Australia. In <laughs> so, uh, in fact, um, the Americans quote that statistic and say it was worth more than California. And in 1990, California uh, was, in fact, the seventh largest economy in the world, if it was an independent state. So, even more dramatic, the comparison with California. Uh, obviously, since that time, uh, house prices, uh, real estate prices in Japan have fallen uh, considerably. However, they have... Uh, they have certainly stabilized, and that, that side of the Japanese story seems to have uh, kind of partially turned the corner. Reminds me of the story of the little animals, the lemmings. Mm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you've visited China many, many times, and you show much confidence in this country's economic development. Some economists, some commentators say that if China grows at less than 6%, it's a hard landing. And I, I'm, I'm, hey, I'm not an economist, but I thought if an economy is growing, then it's growing. Are you still confident? Uh, very much so. I mean, the latest data out of uh, China is the first quarter we saw year-on-year growth of 8.1%. That was the lowest level of growth for some time. But as I've said repeatedly now over many years, when you are the second largest economy in the world, you cannot conceivably, statistically or plausibly, sustain growths of uh, 10% and above. I mean, the, the larger you are, then obviously the, the growth that you're growing at is generating a lot of absolute um, of growth. So 8.1%, I think, is very, very commendable. There is a very significant constituency of opinion uh, in the financial markets and in the media as well that continue to what I call engage in China bashing and go so far as to suggest that uh, China is already experiencing a hard landing. Now, as a student of statistics and also arithmetic, if something is growing at 8.1%, uh, I cannot see how that constitutes a hard landing. And if an economy is growing, it is ascending, not descending, and most certainly not landing. So, once again, we're reminded of the prism through which the media wants us to see the world. I mean, the, the whole debate about the growth rate in China is is driven by these, this terminology, is it a hard landing or a soft landing? Well, I think it's neither of the aforementioned. Uh, it's, in fact, we're going to see no landing whatsoever. I think we're going to continue to see uh, China growing at a very respectable rate of growth. But as I said, uh, it cannot uh, grow at 10% when it's the second largest economy in the world. And I think 8.1% is very commendable. I think, in fact, uh, growth will actually decelerate somewhat. But again, uh, I wish to emphasize, and I've been saying this now for many, many years, uh, that I think the, uh, the Chinese economy will continue to perform uh, reasonably well in the years, uh, if not the decades ahead. This is Finance on Thursday, and Barry Preston, we're talking with Jonathan Payne, and we've been in China just recently. We certainly have, and we're going to continue in China. <clears throat> we know about the Europe's challenges, at financial woes, etc., but they must be cutting back on spending, in turn, less need for imports from China, less raw materials from Australia. Does that make sense or not? Well, that's right. I mean, what's happening in Europe is obviously going to have an effect on uh, the broader world. I mean, the European economies in their entirety 
are approximately the size of the U.S. economy. So we're talking about a very considerable part of the so-called global economic map. But once again, uh, I, I just want to emphasize that what we're seeing within the Asian nations, um, and it's right across Asia, is this continuing emergence of the so-called uh, middle classes and the domestic demand engine within Asia, and it's China, India, Indonesia, so on and so forth, is uh, very robust and more than sufficient to offset uh, what I see as inevitable uh, economic stagnation across Europe. So I don't wish to downplay the problems in Europe. Uh, I've written about them and spoken about them for many, many years. But I think we should put them in the context of what is happening in the rest of the world. And I may have said it on your show last time we spoke, that if you combine the populations of uh, Portugal, Ireland, and Greece, uh, it's roughly equivalent to the municipality of Chongqing in China. So mm -hmm. that puts it in some kind of context. So what's happening in China, the mass migration of investment from the coastal to the interior. Um, could you explain a little bit, I read this in your pain report, of what this means, maybe some statistics. The rural school students, water supply rural for residents, uh, units for residents, etc., etc. There's all this happening, they're moving well, that's exactly right. I mean, we, we are witnessing a rebalancing uh, of the Chinese economy geographically and in terms of its composition. Uh, the Chinese authorities have been very concerned about uh, China's excessive export reliance on, for example, the United States and Europe. And following the great crash, or what we call in Australia the GFC in 2008, Chinese authorities look to rebalance and uh, reorientate the, the Chinese economy. So what we've witnessed in the last three to four, five years there's a significant uh, migration of investment away from the very developed and hyper-developed coastal regions, Guangdong, Shanghai, and other areas of China, into the interior, into the great cities of uh, Chongqing and Chengdu, Wuhan, and others. What this has meant is they've, uh, they've built a huge amount of infrastructure to facilitate uh, the movement of companies and investment into the interior. So, for example, expressways, uh, high-speed rail. So by the end of this year... China's high-speed rail network will be as large, if not larger, than the rest of the world combined. Wow. They're laying thousands of kilometers of expressways. Uh, they're building airports. Um, so they're creating an infrastructure which can accommodate uh, the movement of companies into the interior. So one of the, the, one of the larger employers and a, and a company that makes much of the componentry for Apple, iPhone, iPads, etc., a company by the name of Foxconn, a Taiwanese company, which employs about 1.4 million people worldwide and just about over 1 million people in China. They're relocating their factories from the southern provinces, coastal provinces of China, into the interior. And this is to, to name just one company. There are many, many other major mm. global companies that are looking to move into the Chinese interior uh, to take advantage of lower wages. Was, in fact, wage growth on the coastal areas of China has been extraordinarily strong. And wages are growing at 18 to 20 percent per annum uh, across China. So companies are looking to access cheaper labor in the interior of China. And now that the government, uh, in conjunction with local government, has created the right kind of quality infrastructure, uh, those companies can now move into the interior. So, you know, this is uh, this is a, you know, another another story out of China that is of historical significance. This rebalancing and reconfiguration of the Chinese economy. But you don't read about that. No, well, we don't. And it's, well, again, I, I, I've said this 
to, to so many of my audiences, and I've said this in my pain report, you know, much of the media is obviously uh, generated in the so-called Western world, uh, and that's pretty much what we read. Mm. Um, and it's quite frightening, really, uh, how little good news uh, they tend to highlight. I mean, for example, in 2000, uh, in 2011, uh, China created 12.12 million new urban jobs. Um, the rest of the world were pretty much laying them off. Um, it it gave, gave access to water to 63 million additional rural residents. Uh, it, 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 gener- it delivered electricity to over 600,000 people living in areas that previously had no power supply. Uh, they're building uh, many, many millions of, of homes, uh, the so-called social housing for low-income groups, so on and so forth. So these are extraordinary achievements that we never see written about uh, in, in our newspapers. You, you commented, I know we're just about to run out of time, but you commented about their electricity over there. I hope they don't get bill increases like we're getting here. <laughs> no? No, that's not. It's pretty, it's pretty painful here, isn't it, <laughs> increasing electricity price. Jonathan, look, there's so many other questions, and uh, we'll get you back very soon to talk about Indonesia, Vietnam and India. I know they're your pets too, but... On behalf of t- uh, listeners of 2NURFM 103.7, thank you very much indeed for bringing us up to date on the international market. That's an absolute pleasure, Barry. All thank you. Best.